Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello. Kyungla, how are you? David Chalian, I'm good. Driving uh, from <laughs> Phoenix to Arizona. Phoenix to Arizona? Phoenix uh, is in Arizona. I mean, sorry, Phoenix, Phoenix to Los Angeles, sorry. Phoenix to Los Angeles. <laughs> I need another cup of coffee. Is everyone working remotely? Yes, we are all working yeah. remotely. <laughs> are you physically driving while talking? No, no, we pulled over Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. The new normal in America now includes us recording this podcast uh, remotely. Uh, our, my producer, uh, me, our guests, we're all in various locations gathered uh, telephonically, and we're going to try this out to see if we can pull this off uh, to do this uh, remotely. But obviously, we heard uh, from the President of the United States again from the podium in the briefing room of the White House and it sounds like the country is moving into even a more aggressive response, uh, especially in terms of the president deploying more military resources as we deal with uh, schools being closed and restaurants and bars shuttered and shelter in place orders coming uh, sort of city by city. Now, uh, this is America's uh, new normal. And in that new normal, there was uh, a critical primary election last night Uh Across three states, it was supposed to be four, but in Florida, Arizona, and Illinois, Joe Biden uh, had sweeping victories across all three and basically brought an end to the nomination season in in all terms here. Because while Bernie Sanders hasn't bowed out of this race yet, Joe Biden uh, doubled his delegate lead in his enormous victories last night to make it just an almost insurmountable task for Bernie Sanders and the coronavirus is having an impact here, too, as so many states are delaying their elections. So the primary calendar being delayed significantly, the insurmountable lead for Joe Biden, all of this has sort of had this uh, strange ending to uh, this nomination season that my colleagues uh, Leila Santiago and Kyung La have been joining me in covering for the better part of a year. I'll get to them in just a moment. And then later, uh, we will be joined by Dr. Seema Yasmin. Uh, she is not only a doctor, but also her journalistic experience is going to fascinate you all about the work she's done about the spread of misinformation in times like these. But first, uh, to Florida and Arizona, Leila Santiago, you're in Clearwater, Florida. Kyung La, you are driving on the road, pulled over somewhere on the side of the road. Thank you. So you're safe uh, between <laughs> Phoenix and Los Angeles. Um, Layla, let me begin with you. And you both uh, sent in these fascinating conversations and photos you had with voters yesterday. What was it like, Layla, talking to voters yesterday as to why they were coming out and voting at the same time that their government was telling them uh, not to go to places with more than 10 people? 
Well, and especially when you take into account who was coming out to vote, um, you know, initially in that you know morning hour rush, and I say rush kind of in quotes because uh, there really weren't that many people where I was, which was uh, Hialeah. But I, you know, the first few voters and the majority of the voters, they were all 65 plus. So that was that vulnerable population that we heard health officials say, stay home, stay home. Um, you know, what I got from my conversations with many of them uh, was a sense of duty. I asked him why he's going out, especially after guidelines that say uh, more than 10 people shouldn't be gathered. And he's saying because it's a right we have to vote and, and we should exercise that right. A sense of duty from folks who said when you were given the right to vote, you exercise that right no matter what. Now, remember, this is Hialeah, so it's a very um, Latino, uh, high population um, right where I, where I was. And so many folks uh, referred to their experiences in Cuba to express why they felt so strongly about that. But, but when you would talk to them about what they were doing inside the polling site, um, they, they were quick to say, like, oh, yeah, I had a mask on. Or one gentleman, as I approached him, had hand sanitizer that he was putting all over his hands and even wiping down his cars, even the handle to the car door. Um, so they were taking precautions. Like it, to me, it was clear that they understood that this was not, oh, you know, business as usual. Go, go vote and, and, and carry on your day. They, they knew this was different, um, but they very much had a sense of duty. And when, when you spoke to the the volunteers. I thought it was interesting that many of them would say, oh man, like we've been here volunteering for decades and we miss seeing a lot of a lot of the voters that we typically see on a day like today, but but maybe November will be different, right? That that, yeah. that they, they, they wanted to make sure that this was not a new normal for them. Yeah, some of those volunteers who work polling stations, uh, they, they have indeed been doing it uh, for decade, decades. Kyung, um, when you spoke to voters, were they engaged in talking to you about the election like Biden versus Sanders or were was their mind more on what the country is facing right now with this coronavirus outbreak and, and pandemic and and uh what did they say to you as to why they were showing up was it also a sense of duty uh, a lot of it was behavior modification plus duty Yes, they felt the same thing that uh, everything that you heard Layla just say. But um, what we saw was the entire process had changed. And, and I found this really, really fascinating. Um, yes, they want to vote. Yes, they want to keep American democracy moving. Um, but the entire process of when they first check in. Just tell me what this is. Well, I think they gave me hand sanitizer when I, like, uh, you know, cleaned my envelope get hand hand sanitizer at each polling place they give you water to kind of close your envelope so you don't have to lick it the touch screen has been wiped down on the way out you get your i voted sticker and i voted with an alcohol wipe come on <laughs> and and i took a picture of uh, a 55 year old man named mike herwitz and he held up the i voted p uh, sticker and his alcohol wipe triumphantly saying he did it um, uh, that's what I saw over and over again. I actually uh, spoke with a, a guy who works at a hospital, a, a young doctor, and he left his shift. He had been working endless hours. He was wearing a mask. He said, don't come near me because I'm high risk, yet he voted. And so it, it's all about uh, uh, you know adjusting your behavior, trying to take part in American democracy and move forward with um, doing what they felt a responsibility for. And something really important, David, is turnout was up. 
And granted, Phoenix has seen um, a, an expansion of its population. Uh, more Democrats have registered to vote. More Republicans have registered to vote. But turnout was up despite yeah. the coronavirus outbreak. Well, in both Florida and Arizona, just to that point, uh, they are huge early absentee states, well over a majority are early absentee voters. Uh, unlike Illinois, where we saw turnout is probably going to be a bit down. Uh, it's a much more it's a state with a much bigger tradition of, of Election Day in person voting, uh, even though they had a record early vote. And I think the whole country is moving towards that way quickly before I let each of you go. Uh, did did anyone you talked to yesterday said, like, what the hell am I doing here? I, I like we shouldn't be having an election. Layla, did anyone say that to you? Um, you know, I can't say that anyone said that. But mind you, like there were only 56 people who showed up to vote where I was. So, you know, there 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 wasn't a very large crowd gathering in lines or anything like that saying, keep voting, everybody. You know, I didn't see exactly what Kyung did. But um, no, nobody actually mentioned that, be it volunteers, election officials or voters themselves. I had a lady scream at me through her uh, car door window. Oh, no. Uh, it was cracked open, and she said, I'm freaked out. Don't come near me. Um, she had uh, dropped her early ballot at one of the ballot drop boxes, um, and she, she was worried. She ran out of her car, dropped her ballot, and ran back into the car. And when I tried to talk to her, she didn't want to talk about it. So, um, yeah, people people are worried. Uh, you know, we, we cannot underestimate that despite all the brave faces we did speak with yesterday, Americans are worried. They're yeah, absolutely worried. No doubt about it. Leila Santiago. Kyung La, two of our superstar political reporters this season, I can't thank you enough. You're both still in the field doing your job at this time. Uh, when so many of us are working from home, I can't thank you enough for that. Please, both of you, stay safe, and thanks for being here. You bet. Joining me now is Dr. Seema Yasmin, a public health physician, former Epidemic Intelligence Service Officer, and a CNN medical analyst. Uh, thank you so much for being here, Doctor. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Can I just get your take on what you may have heard from the president today? Uh, it seems uh, the 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 U.S. government response, um, which the, the you know you've heard the vice president say this is a whole of government response. It now almost seems I don't mean to be too dramatic about this, but like moving into sort of a martial law kind of phase. We we heard about. Um, uh, some military ships that are going to be on the east and west coast to be able to potentially uh, handle patients. Uh, we hear uh, more and more cities are indeed um, having a sort of shelter in place uh, component in place. Is this is this the right response? And is this what Americans should be more prepared for in your thinking? So we've definitely seen an about turn in terms of U.S. policy and actually needing a Britain-U.K. policy as well in, in the context of the epidemic response. As a public health physician, what I can tell you is when you're thinking about responding to these kinds of public health crises, the time when you're making a decision, if it already feels like a comfortable decision that's going to be well accepted, you're usually too late by that point. So you're having to make these tough calls that often feel almost too early, almost too disruptive to many people. But that is what it takes when you're dealing with the spread of a new virus. And already in the U.S., we've seen so many delays in terms of that testing, in terms of taking this seriously. Just a couple of days ago, the president said from behind the White House podium that, quote, unquote, this was under 
tremendous control. Then the very next day, when a reporter from the White House press court asked about that, he said, no, it isn't under control. So I think that's how you end up with this disconnect that I'm experiencing, where as I'm a medical journalist reporting on the folks on the front lines of this epidemic, I'm hearing ER doctors and nurses say to me, we're panicked. We don't feel supported or ready for this. And then I get people in my community calling me saying, is this serious? Should I be paying attention or is this just the flu? And that disconnect really alarms me. And I think it starts with that top-down approach where the leadership and the message from the top has been so inconsistent that it's just left people confused. Yeah. And and can I uh, just tap into your expertise and experience in looking at uh, not just the current uh, pandemic that we're dealing with, but in other scenarios like this, is there an example that you've come across in your work and your studies uh, where whether the U.S. government or another uh, nation has has done something that has worked really well that should be used as a model? So there's definitely lessons to be learned from previous epidemics and pandemics. We can't say there's ever been anything quite like this because we're living in a new time, we're connected in different ways, and to be honest, this is a new virus that we're still learning about day by day. But I take a lot of lessons from 100 years ago, from the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, and I have in my mind this really vivid vision of this graph that you may have seen in the New York Times, It compares the Philly response with the St. Louis response. And on this graph, you have the number of deaths from that flu pandemic. In Philly, it's a really sharp curve. Basically, it's a triangle because the deaths peak so quickly, whereas in St. Louis, it's delayed. And it's a much, much lower curve when you're looking at the number of deaths. And all of that comes from the fact that in Philly, the leaders were reassuring the public, saying, this isn't a big deal. You don't need to worry. Oh, parades, we don't need to cancel those. And so what happened is the virus really took a hold there and killed many more people than it should have. And in St. Louis, you had leaders say, we have one case. We need to be really careful. Start doing social distancing and cancel events. And you see that very stark difference related to the response in terms of just a lower number of people who died. Yeah, that's such it was such an astounding comparison to see. Um, I know that in some of your uh, journalistic endeavors, you have also looked at this notion of misinformation during a pandemic, what you've called emotional contagion. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what that is? Do you see some of that in action right now, how best that gets combated and the and the real danger it poses? So what I study as a public health researcher as well is the spread of misinformation and disinformation about health. Misinformation is false news that's not spread with any deliberate need to hurt people. It might be a myth or a hoax that someone shares well-meaningly. But disinformation is deliberately false information that's spread with the intent to cause harm. We saw this happen during Ebola, where a Russian group called the Internet Research Agency actually duplicated CNN's website and spread false news about Ebola spread in Atlanta, specifically with that desire to cause mayhem, to drive first responders to the wrong place to really scare Americans. Now, misinformation and disinformation about health 
spreads in very much the same way that a virus spreads from person to person. And it's really important that we take that seriously as a health threat because diseases do not spread in isolation anymore. They spread alongside rumors, rumors and myths and health hoaxes. And those can actually help fuel the spread of disease and they can leave people very vulnerable and susceptible to infection because they may hear that it's not serious. They may hear that they don't need to do social distancing. For me, it's been frustrating that public health agencies like the World Health Organization haven't taken that threat of false health news as seriously as they take the threat of disease contagion. The two are very much linked. We leave ourselves vulnerable to bad actors causing chaos by spreading deliberate misinformation and, and disinformation. And so that has to be attacked in the same way that we think about controlling an epidemic of disease. And in terms of emotional contagion, this is the idea, again, that disease isn't the only thing that spreads. Emotion spread too. So you have one person that panics, then another person in their home panics, then that spreads to another person in the community, and, and so on and so forth. And we're seeing that now. People are panicked, and they're anxious and scared. Completely understandable, but it's frustrating because a lot of that can be mitigated with clear, consistent messaging that's not trying to reassure people people blindly at all, but it's giving them information that they can use to really make empowered decisions about how seriously they should be taking this and how they should prepare. And what do you make of uh, the president repeatedly calling this disease the, quote, Chinese virus? I would like to begin uh, by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. Okay. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? There are reports of dozens of incidents of bias against Chinese Americans in this country. Your own aide, Secretary Azar, says he does not use this term. He says ethnicity does not cause the virus. Why do you keep using this? A lot it of people comes say from it's China. racist. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why. It comes from China. From a public health education perspective, uh, this... I mean, it seems to me this is him uh, pursuing a political agenda in his public health messaging by calling this the Chinese virus. Is there uh, is there concern about that? It's concerning. So I can tell you as somebody who investigated epidemics that when you turn up to a hot zone, you roll your sleeves up and you just want to get into the business of trying to stop the contagion. And sometimes it's not that simple because politics are involved and egos are involved. I've definitely turned up with my U.S. federal organization badge and people have crossed their arms and they're like, we don't want you here. We don't have good relations with the U.S. That's not what you need during the spread of the virus. And that's why it's really important that we have global health and diplomacy as well. And from a scientific perspective, I mean, let's just be real. Viruses don't belong to nations. Viruses don't have ethnicities. We are all vulnerable. Assigning it to a particular country or particular group of people is harmful from a scientific perspective. The World Health Organization actually has guidance on how we should name and not name pathogens because the name that you give something has a big impact on how people perceive the threat. Look back to the swine flu pandemic, the H1N1 flu pandemic, the World Health Organization had to quickly say, let's not call it swine flu, let's call it H1N1, because in Egypt and other places, there was an unnecessary slaughtering of hundreds of thousands of pigs. So we know that there's an impact between what you name a virus, how people perceive that virus. And of course, we're already seeing reports of violent attacks against people of Chinese descent, against Asian people. And we need to pay close attention to that, that it's not just the disease that is spreading, but it's also xenophobia 
homophobic and racist attacks. And that, that rhetoric from the very top is harmful scientifically and from a public health perspective. That's such a good example about the swine flu and H1N1 and the labeling. Uh, very quickly before you go, you mentioned the president uh, on Sunday saying total control and then uh, and then backing away from that. In the last two days, two and a half days this week, uh, are you sensing um, uh, a response from our federal government beyond just the president himself that is more in line of where you th- think we need to be or is are there major adjustments that still need to be made in its response do you believe it's starting to get there but we still need to address the issue with testing the numbers are now going up it's what we refer to as an epidemic of detection where you start seeing the cases go up and it's actually just because you're starting to detect them more adequately but what the the numbers that we see we're probably expecting at least a tenfold increase in the number of people who are actually infected we are so far behind with the testing and that really hampers the public health response my sources tell me there's going to be an investigation at the cdc to figure out why this happened. It certainly hasn't happened in the past. CDC has been at the forefront of developing tests for Ebola, for H1N1. So I want to know why that's happened. But I also want us to ask questions about our preparedness for our first responders and our first-line healthcare workers. The strategic national stockpile was depleted during the H1N1 pandemic. 85 million N95 respirators were deployed. Why were they not replaced? Why do we only have 12 million now? Why are 5 million expired in the strategic national stockpile? We need to ask these questions about the lack of preparedness, even as we're moving quickly now, thinking about ramping up the process and just trying to get ahead of the virus. It is already so far ahead of us. Dr. Yasmin, thank you so much for helping uh, to educate us. Uh, Thank you so much for your continued work uh, in this area. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And also a special thanks to our listeners as well, especially as we are uh, attempting to continue to bring you this podcast uh, on a daily basis uh, in this remote atmosphere. Uh, apologies, there's a lot of construction going on outside where I am if that is interfering with the audio, but uh, we will continue to uh, work out the kinks and do our best to bring you uh, this uh, daily DC podcast each day. We, we publish a new episode every weeknight. So please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And while you're there, please consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about the podcast, please do so using the hashtag the daily DC. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.